Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Andrea Pride, and today I have a repeat appearance from Karsten Gansauger, who is going to tell us about not one, but two interpretations from the TV meeting. Welcome back, Karsten. Great to be here again. So, Karsten, the Interpretations Committee has met twice since we last had a chat on IFRS Talks. In March, it discussed two items for initial consideration and a tentative agenda decision on cloud computing arrangements. And in April, it discussed three tentative agenda decisions. So, we're planning to devote a whole podcast to cloud computing arrangements, so let's not talk about that today. And the agenda decisions in April are still subject to approval from the board at the May ISB meeting. Let's look at the March meeting first then. So the topic for initial consideration was non-refundable value-added tax on these payments, which deals with something in IFRS 16. Can you tell us what the issue is here? Sure. So, so this submission was about how a lessee accounts for non-refundable VAT charged on lease payments. So, so assume a lessee that operates in a jurisdiction where VAT is charged on lease payments when an invoice is issued by the lessor and where the applicable legislation requires the lessor to collect VAT from the lessee and to remit it to the government. Now, let's assume that because of the nature of its operations, the lessee can recover only a portion of the VAT. And so a portion of the VAT the lessee pays is non-refundable. The request essentially asks whether in this type of situation, the lessee would include non-refundable VAT as part of the lease payments for lease. And the Interpretations Committee decided to issue a tentative agenda decision. Could you tell us about their conclusion? Sure. Well, um, the EFRIC did issue a tentative agenda decision, but really without give, giving any direction. This is because the outreach conducted provided limited evidence that non-refundable VAT on lease payments is material to affected lessees and also of diversity in the way lessees account for non-refundable VAT on lease payments. The, the committee has therefore not yet obtained evidence that the matter is widespread and has a material effect on those affected and therefore tentatively decided not to add the standard setting project to the work plan. So the Interpretations Committee didn't really give much of a steer on the appropriate accounting treatments um, here and just noted that there seemed to be limited evidence of diversity in accounting in this area. Could you give us some more background on what entities have been doing in practice, please? Yeah, sure. So I, actually, I think that's a really good question. The, the IFRIC did not say much on this at all, but I'm happy to share some own personal thoughts and observations on this. First of all, my sense is that the issue of non-refundable VAT is quite an industry-specific issue. So based on the limited outreach performed, it really, it really only seems to be relevant in a few industries, such as banking and insurance, real estate and healthcare. My own personal experience is that whilst it may affect a number of industries, it seems to be particularly material in the healthcare industry in, the, in a number of territories. Second, as you pointed out, the tentative agenda decision indicates that there seems to be limited evidence of diversity in the, in the accounting for non-refundable VAT. So how do entities account for non-refundable VAT in practice? Well, I think this probably depends on a number of factor, factors, including the applicable legislation in the country, but 
certainly in the in the fact patterns I've seen personally, entities generally do not include non-refundable VAT as part of lease payments, which is consistent with what we've heard in the outreach done by the staff, where almost all respondents to the outreach also said that lessees generally do not include non-refundable VAT as part of lease payments. So in, in, in my experience, the most prevalent fact pattern at least in the European Union, and I believe also in some other parts of the world, seems to be where the lesser collects VAT on regular, you know, say, say monthly lease payments from the lessee and then passes those payments on to the government. So the lesser is essentially just collecting the VAT on behalf of the government. Mm -hmm. So although the, the TA tentative agenda decision is silent on this, and the exact analysis will, of course, depend on the applicable legislation in each, each jurisdiction. My, my personal view is that non-refundable VAT payments will generally not meet the definition of lease payments, at, at least for those more prevalent fact patterns that we commonly see in practice, which is consistent with what people generally seem to do in practice. So what, what I just explained is obviously going a bit beyond what the IFRIC actually said. So really more some personal views and observations, which I hope uh, may nonetheless be helpful for folks to, you know, to get some steer and to better understand what entities have been doing in practice. Okay, thank you for that, Karsten. Um, let's move on to the second topic, which was also for initial consideration. And this was about whether warrants classified as financial liabilities on initial recognition are reclassified at a later point. Could you tell us about this issue? Sure. So on this one, the committee received a request about the application of IS-32 in relation to the reclassification of warrants. Specifically, the request described a warrant that provides the holder with the right to buy a fixed number of equity instruments of the issuer for an exercise price that will be fixed at a future date. So the exercise price is not fixed at the date the instrument is issued, but will be fixed at a later date during the life of the instrument. So let me perhaps start by reminding folks of the requirements in IS-32 for the classification of derivatives as debt versus equity. Now, for a derivative financial instrument to be classified as equity, it must be settled by the issuer exchanging a fixed number of cash or another financial asset for a fixed number of its own equity instruments. This is what is commonly called the fixed for fixed condition in IS-32. So in this situation where the exercise price is not yet fixed at the date the warrant is issued, this means that at initial recognition, because of the variability in the exercise price, the, issu the issuer would classify these instruments as liabilities. The submission now asks whether the issuer reclassifies the warrant as an equity instrument after initial recognition following the fixing of its exercise price, given that the fixed for fixed condition would be met at that later point in time. Okay, so what did the interpretations conclude about that? Well, the committee observed that IS-32 contains no general requirements for reclassifying financial liabilities and equity instruments after initial recognition when the instrument's contractual terms are unchanged. The committee also acknowledged that you know, similar questions about reclassification arise in a number of other circumstances, which are described in the underlying staff paper in more detail, and, and that the reclassification by the issuer has been identified as one of the practice issues the board will consider um, in its files project. So for background, 
the board has an active project to revisit the requirements on IS32, which is called Financial Instruments with Characteristics of Equity, or FICE project, and which is aiming to address some of these questions. So because of this, the committee concluded that the matter described in the request is in isolation, too narrow for the board or the committee to address in a cost-efficient manner. So instead, rather than the IFRIC addressing this, the board should consider the matter as part of its broader, broader discussions on the FICE project. So essentially, this matter has now been referred to and will be dealt with by the board. Thanks, Kirsten. So I guess that's going to take a little while to work its way through the system. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to April then. So as I mentioned, the Interpretations Committee finalised two tentative agenda decisions subject to the ISB's ratification. Um, and the first one was a question asked to the Interpretations Committee about the periods of service to which an entity attributes benefit for a particular defined benefit plan. Could you remind us about this issue, please? Sure. So, so the IS-19 submission we discussed at the April meeting was a submission about a particular type of employee benefit plan where employees are entitled to a lump sum benefit payment when they reach a particular retirement age. And the amount of the employee benefit depends on the length of employee services immediately before the retirement age and is capped as, at a specified number of consecutive years of service. So more specifically, let me describe uh, the terms of, this, uh, of that, the specific employee plan we discussed. So employees were, are entitled to a retirement benefit only when they reach the retirement age, provided they are employed by the entity when they reach that retirement age. The amount of the benefit is calculated as one month of final salary for each year of service when the entity, the entity before the retirement age. The benefit is kept at a certain number of years of service. So in the specific fact pattern, it was 16 years. And so the maximum retirement benefit to which an employee was entitled is 16 months of final salary. And under the plan's benefit formula, the retirement benefit is calculated using only the number of consecutive years of employee services with the entity immediately before the retirement age. So the issue really was how to attribute employee benefits in this particular type of fact pattern. So essentially, when an entity should recognize the related expenses, expenses under such a benefit plan. So what did the feedback tell us and what did the Interpretations Committee conclude? Now, the principle in IS-19 is that an entity should attribute benefits to periods of services under the plan's benefit formula, starting from the date when employee services first leads to benefits under the plan and ending at the date when further employee services will lead to no material amounts of further benefits under the plan. So the question really was around how to determine the date when employee services first leads to benefits. So when the entity should start recognizing expense under the plan and specifically whether expense recognition should start when an employee joins the entity or whether instead expense recognition should only start at some later date in accordance with the plan's benefit formula. So on this one, there were quite there was you know, quite some concerns from respondents around backloading of expenses, and also a few who felt that the requirements in IS-19 were not entirely clear in this regard, which, which I personally had some 
sympathy with. But after some debate, there was a clear majority at the committee that supported recognition of expense in accordance with, with the plan's benefit formula. So just to be clear, in the fact pattern that I just described, the practical implication of this is that there may be no recognition of related ex employee expense in the initial years of employment. So recognition of expenses would not necessarily start when the employee joins the entity. Now, who is affected by this? Based on the outreach, it appears that you know, these types of plans or similar plans are common in only a few countries, such as Greece, France, and a few other countries. Now, if you're interested in details of territories that appear to be, to be affected based on the outreach, I recommend you have a look at the December 2020 staff paper. But, but a word, word of caution here. I think the discussion at the committee has made it clear that it, it's, ne that it's necessary to look at the exact facts of the employee benefit plan. So for example, much emphasis has been put in, put in the analysis, you know, that in this particular employee benefit plan, the benefit is calculated only using the number of consecutive years immediately before retirement. Also, I understand that some plans may involve additional service conditions. So I think the discussion at the committee indicates that even slight changes to the employee plans may result in a different accounting. So I think you really need to look at the exact facts of each plan and cannot just assume that because plans say, um, say two territories are similar, that the accounting would necessarily also be similar. The next issue the Interpretations Committee discussed was the tentative agenda decision on hedging variability in cash flows due to real interest rates. Uh, could you give us a refresher on the background to this issue, please, again? Sure. So, so this request was about a specific hedge accounting question and more specifically how to apply the hedge accounting requirements in IFRS 9 when the risk management objective is to fix the cash flows in real terms. So this is perhaps perhaps a bit of a niche question, but quite relevant for a few regulated inter industries where revenues from operations may be linked to inflation, which I understand may, may for example, be the case for, for airport op operators in some countries. So the submission asks whether a hedge of the variability in cash flows arising from changes in the real interest rate rather than the nominal, nominal interest rate could be accounted for as a cash flow hedge. More specifically, the request describes a fact pattern in which an entity wants to hedge a floating rate debt with an inflation swap, you know, which swaps the variable interest cash flows on, of the floating rate debt for variable cash flows based on an inflation and index in a cash flow hedge. So this is really going quite deep into the technicalities of IFRS 9 hedge accounting. Okay, and what did the comment letter say to that? Did you get many? And what did the IFRIC decide? Well, as I said, it's perhaps a bit of a niche question and we, we don't have the time to go into the technical details, I think. You know, there were quite a few comments on various aspects of the analysis. So just on a high level on this specific question, the committee essentially concluded that there's no exposure to variability in cash flows that is attributable to changes in the real interest rate in the proposed cash flow, cash flow hedging relationship. And therefore, the real interest rate risk component in the proposed cash flow hedging relationship does not meet the requirements in IFRS 9 to be designated as an eligible hedged item. 
So because of this, the committee essentially concluded that the proposed hedging relationship does not meet the criteria in IFRS 9 to qualify for hedge accounting. So you really do cover all sorts of things at the Interpretations Committee. So let's move from this very niche topic to something with much broader applicability. The last one is the classification of debt with covenants as current or non-current. So I understand that this is an issue where respondents don't necessarily disagree with the technical analysis of the committee, but they do have concerns about the outcome. So could you tell us first about the issue in the technical analysis, and then I'll come back to the concerns. Yeah, sure. Now, this is definitely an interesting one that captures a lot of, att uh, of attention. We covered this already in the December 2020 IFRIC update podcast, going through some examples to illustrate. So I wasn't planning to go into too much detail today, but just as a quick reminder, this is about the IS-1 amendments that the board issued in early 2020 that clarify how to classify financial liabilities as current or non-current in particular circumstances. Essentially, these IS-1 amendments are about whether debt should be classified as current or non-current when the timing of repayment of debt is affected by debt covenants. These new requirements in IS-1 are not yet effective. They are only mandatory for any annual periods beginning on or after 1st of January 2023. So even though these requirements are not yet mandatory, they nonetheless have already caused quite a bit of debate. So at the December meeting, the committee discussed three specific examples of debt covenants that are related to the financial position of an entity. The committee tentatively decided at the December meeting that in all three cases, the debt should be classified as current rather than non-current. If you're interested in more details, I recommend you have a look at the examples described in the December IFRIC meeting papers, or just listen in to our previous podcast summarizing those discussions from the December 2020 meeting. Now, at the April meeting, the committee confirmed its agreement with the technical analysis in the tentative agenda decision. Nonetheless, before finalizing the agenda decision, the committee decided to report to the board both its technical analysis and conclusions on the matter, and also respondents' comments on the outcomes and potential consequences of applying the amendments, highlighting those that might provide new information to the board. So essentially, the committee confirmed its technical analysis, but did not, or perhaps I should say, did not yet issue an agenda decision. So it's asking the board to consider the feedback received from comment letters before finalizing any agenda decision. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit more about its concerns and what the committee decided to do? Yeah, sure. So, so, so let me start by saying that this is perhaps a bit of a special situation for a number of reasons, which include first that the IFRIC is dealing with an application question around the standard that only becomes mandatory in 2023, but has already raised some application questions. And second, that feedback from respondents appears to include some new information that the board has not specifically considered when developing those amendments, such as, for example, the implications for covenants at entities with a growing or seasonal business. Also, I think the discussion has first surfaced some additional questions around how to apply these new requirements to covenants other than those that are based on an entity's financial position. 
such as, for example, those based on cumulative performance or non-financial governance. So essentially, some of the main concerns from respondents included questions around whether the new requirements actually provide useful information in all situations, especially where governments are intentionally structured in, in a dynamic way, as it may be the case for growing or seasonal businesses. And also around how to apply those new requirements for governance other than those relating to financial, to the financial position of an entity, you know, such as those related to cumulative performance or non-financial governance. So to summarize, for these reasons, and given there's still some time until these requirements become effective, the committee decided at this stage to report back to the board both its technical analysis and conclusions, but also on respondents' comments on the outcomes and potential consequences of applying the amendments, highlighting specifically those that might provide new information to the board. And we will watch this space to see what the board does. Thank you, Kirsten. I'm sure we'll be discussing that again sometime. Um, I think that brings us to the end of the topics discussed by the Interpretations Committee in March and April. So thank you for joining me again in this podcast. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening. Stay safe and happy accounting. Thank you. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.